The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Good morning. We want to welcome all of you to our morning worship service here at West Houston Bible Church. One announcement uh, for those of you who are aware of him, Zola Levitt, who has had a tremendous ministry uh, teaching the Word. He was born a Jew, came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior, had a tremendous ministry of evangelism, uh, went to be with the Lord on April the 18th of this week. He was diagnosed with uh, lung cancer that metastasized to his brain very rapidly. He was just diagnosed back in February. So he went to be with the Lord this last uh, this last week. You can read more about him and his ministry at his uh, website. I don't believe there are any other announcements this morning. We had a tremendous time yesterday. For those of you who missed it, we had a tremendous uh, beginning premiere of our family night and watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And that, if you haven't seen that, you ought to watch it. I think I'm going to watch it a couple of more times. It functions at a bunch of different levels. And especially if you've been coming on Thursday night Bible class in Hebrews where we've been talking about epistemology and how we know what we know and what your ultimate authority for truth and reality is, it's uh, very interesting, and of course C.S. Lewis is well known because he was an apology, wrote uh, Mere Christianity and other works dealing with this whole issue. And of course the last two weeks in, on Hebrews I've talked about how different ways of knowing have impacted our strategy in apologetics. So I'll come back and tie that together a little bit more using this as an example on Thursday night. Well, before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so grateful that we can come together this morning, that we can gather together as a body of believers in freedom in this great nation, that those who have lived before us had the wisdom and the insight to uh, lay down the foundation of freedom and separation of church and state in this nation, and that there were so many who were willing to make the ultimate sacrifice in order to not only gain, but also to preserve the freedoms that we have. Father, let us not take these things lightly, but realize how valuable it is that we have the freedom to study your word, that we have your word, and that we can come together on a weekly basis and study your word and be refreshed and encouraged and strengthened in our Christian life. We pray that this service will honor and glorify you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. We will begin with hymn number 10. Oh, worship the King. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 119. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 81. As we have gone through our reading in Psalm 119, I hope that you have been noticing how many different ways the writer refers to God's Word. He uses phrases such as, uh, your word, uh, your testimony, your statutes, your judgments, your law. 
All of these are different ways of describing the Word of God. The entire psalm is extolling the value and the priority of knowing God's Word and its practical value in our life. In Psalm 119:81 through 88, this stanza focuses on using the Word in times of adversity, times when we seem overwhelmed by uh, whether it's people or circumstances, whatever the events may be. So pay attention to how the writer is using the Word as a, a way of handling the problems in his life. It says, My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope I have confidence in your Word. My eyes fail from searching your Word, saying, When will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in smoke, yet I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The proud have dug pits for me, which is not according to your law. All your commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help me. They almost made an end of me on earth, but I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. It's God's grace that has provided everything for us, including His Word. So let's stand and sing hymn number 202, Amazing Grace. God in His grace provides everything for us. Scripture says that He has provided everything for us for life and godliness. His Word is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. And because He has provided for us so richly and so abundantly, it is part of our worship and part of our privilege to give back to the Lord as an expression of our gratitude for all that He has done for us. Scripture teaches that as every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we're indeed grateful that you have provided so much for us, and each day is a testimony to your grace, to your ongoing provision that is neither earned nor deserved. Now, Father, as we uh, take up this offering... This is not a way of gaining approbation from you, but is an expression of our, of our love. It's an expression of our gratitude. It is an expression of our response to everything that you have provided for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study, 
this uh, morning. Let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in right relationship with God, the opportunity to admit or acknowledge any known sins to Him that He might forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we might be able to uh, take in the Word of God under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit who can use it to produce spiritual growth and strength in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we are mindful of the fact that your word is not simply another book, but it is the special revelation which you have given through the work of God the Holy Spirit, who breathed out your word through the prophets and apostles as they wrote down that which you desired for them to write. And in your sovereignty, you guaranteed that what they wrote was free from error. And in your sovereignty, you preserved it down through the ages that today we can sit here and have the mind of Christ in front of us. Father, we pray that we might not take this lightly, but we might realize that we have the power of the ages before us in your word. Scripture says your word is truth and that we can have freedom through your truth. And it is because it is truth that we have power and we have freedom. And you have given us your Holy Spirit who indwells us and who teaches us and guides us. And he does this through your word. And so we dedicate this time of worship, the highest form of worship, to study your word, to learn how you think, that it might transform our thinking, that we may be conformed to the reality of your word, the reality of your creation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Revelation chapter 3. Verse 1, and we're dealing with one of the two congregations in the seven congregations in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 that have nothing valuable going on in their spiritual life. They are at a point in the spiritual life of those two congregations where they have become so enmeshed in the world system surrounding them and the carnality of their own arrogance that there is not one positive thing that the Lord Jesus Christ can commend them for. They have become complacent in their spiritual growth. They have become lazy. They have regressed. And they are without anything positive. But the congregation at Sardis isn't as bad as the one in Laodicea, which we're going to get to. So the, the principle we learn from that is no matter... How far you think you have blown it, how badly you've blown it in the spiritual life, no matter how far you think you have regressed, it's always possible to go further. (laughs) And the grace of God gives you the opportunity to recover and to reverse your decline and to regain the ground that you have lost. And that's what the message here in this short evaluation of the church of Sardis is all about. So let's just review a couple of things. First of all, the first verse begins to the angel. This is the heavenly court reporter who is keeping an accounting of these evaluation statements and their outworking in history. To the angel of the congregation in Sardis, and we have seen that this is one of those uh, seven congregations in the western part of 
uh, what was known as the Roman province of Asia, the western part of what we call uh, Turkey, to the angel of the church in Sardis write. And this is the divine evaluation report. Jesus Christ is giving them, each of these congregations, an on-site, mid-course evaluation report. Now, somebody might think, why doesn't he do that for us? He did. It's right here. These seven letters, these seven evaluation reports, are a full or complete composite of the trends that take place in any congregation, any time, any place throughout the pattern of the church age, throughout the period of the church age, so that you can go to these and make a list, which we'll do at the end, of all the different positive things they are commended for, all the negative things they are condemned for, and create a checklist. This checklist is not only something that can apply to us as a congregation, but it can also apply to each person as an individual in terms of their own spiritual life. As we see here, there is nothing said that is a commendation to this congregation, yet we learn in verse 4 that there are those in the congregation who are going forward, who are oriented to God's grace and oriented to His Word. For in verse 4 we read, You have a few names, even in Sardis. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white. So verse 1, To the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We saw that this was part of those characteristics describing the Lord Jesus Christ back in Revelation chapter 1 when John the Apostle had the vision of Jesus Christ and that whole picture of the Lord Jesus Christ with his hair white as pure wool and his uh, legs like bright, shining, white uh, uh, metal uh, that he was a picture of a judge. The whole picture there, the, the white robe, the belt that uh, was girt about his waist, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, not as the, the friend, a uh, personal friend of John's that he knew during the first advent, but a picture of him coming in judgment, that he is the one who has the right to evaluate the church. But he is pictured in this epistle as the one who holds two things, who has... Uh, He's pictured like a judge. He's weighing. uh, Has the seven spirits of God on the one side, the seven stars on the other side. And then he says, I know your works, that you have a name or a reputation, uh, that you are alive but you're dead. Now, in review, we see that this evaluator is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one addressing each one of these churches. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who will be the groom and the church is the bride of Christ, and this is part of the preparation of the bride to be able to take her place with her groom, which occurs after the rapture in the heavens. There's an evaluation of the judgment seat of Christ, followed by the wedding feast and the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then we return with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is pictured as a priest-king. This kingly function does not come about until the return at the second coming. The emphasis during this age is 
in his role as a priest. In his role as priest, he is not only the one who comes and gives us aid, the one that intercedes for us on a day-to-day basis uh, at the throne of God. He is the one that is going to judge us. That comes out of his priestly role. And he is the only one, we've learned this in Hebrews chapter 2, 10 and 11, Hebrews uh, 4, 14 to 16. He's the only qualified peer judge. He was fully human so that everything that he went through was the same as the things that we went through. Hebrews 4 tells us that he was tested or examined in all points as we are, just like us, no different. He didn't pull rank. He didn't pull, pull out his divine attributes and solve the problems on the basis of his deity. He solved those problems, the testings, on the same way that you and I do, and that is through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. This qualifies him to be our peer judge, which means that when we're standing before his evaluation then nobody's going to be able to blow any smoke up his robes and try to convince him that it really wasn't. uh, It was so difficult. It was so hard. You just had to have been there. And Jesus said, well, I was there. I went through it all, just like you. So I had the same opportunity that you did, and I used it, and you didn't. And that is the Spirit of God and the Word of God. He was tested or examined just like us, yet without sin. That is what qualifies him to be our Pure judge. Now, the picture we see in Revelation 3 1 of him as the judge holding the seven spirits of God on the one hand, which, as I said, represents the fullness uh, of the power of the Holy Spirit for the believer today. On the one hand, he has the seven spirits of God, and on the other hand, he has the seven stars. And he's pictured there as a judge. He is the one who uh, dispenses. The Holy Spirit. He is the one who provides the Holy Spirit for the church. He is the one who is in sovereign control of the church, and He thus has provided for us the source for everything we need for every problem we face in the spiritual life. It is through God the Holy Spirit that we are able to understand the Word. It's through God the Holy Spirit that the Word of God is stored in our soul. It's through God the Holy Spirit that that Word that is stored in our soul is brought back to memory at times that we need to apply it. So Jesus Christ is the one who uh, is not only the dispenser of justice, but He is the one who is the dispenser of the solution. And we have a divine solution through the Holy Spirit that is a perfect solution. So the second thing that we've seen is that Jesus Christ provides the only real solution to life's problems. You're not going to solve your marriage problems, your money problems, your parental problems by watching Dr. Phil every afternoon. You're not going to solve those problems by getting on board with the latest Christian uh, psychology and counseling model that comes down the pike. If you take a look, a detailed examination of these things, nearly every Christian model of counseling is nothing more than a baptized form of a secular model. And because the secular model is based upon a non-biblical view of man and the cause of human problems, when you baptize it with a bunch of Bible verses and you uh, incorporate and you use biblical terminology to explain these 
you know, secular human viewpoint uh, problems and situations, then you end up creating a pseudo-solution. A lot of people think it works. A lot of people think that's the way you get to uh, happiness in the Christian life. You're going to solve your marriage problems, your family problems, your parenting problems, your money problems, uh, your emotional problems, whatever they are. But the Word of God says that God has provided everything that we need in order to solve and face those problems in the Word. And we didn't have to wait for Freud to come along. We didn't have to wait for all the secular counselors and psychologists to come along and develop their models of human behavior in the 20th century. We didn't have to wait for all of the various uh, Christians to come along, go through schools and get their MAs and PhDs in psychology and counseling, and then come back and and uh, try to merge psychology with the Bible to create just another form of human viewpoint thinking. Jesus Christ provides the only real solution to life's problems because the core problem is sin. Whatever happens, whatever the circumstances are, in any, in any situation, eventually you discover that the culprit is a sin nature. If it's in marriage... Usually it's two sin natures. In a family, often it's three or four sin natures. And you have to start looking at what the strategies of those individual sin natures are in order to discover what the problem is so that you can apply the biblical principles and arrive at the divine grace solution. And so this is what we see in this uh, church in Sardis, is they have a lot of problems inside this church. They have a reputation that they're alive, but the evaluation from the omniscient judge is that they're really dead. Now, we'll look at what that death means in just a minute. We've gone over it before. But on the inside, they are not operating on the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they are in operational death, and that is necessarily going to domino into a myriad of problems. There were marriage problems in this congregation. There were family problems in this congregation. There were uh, morality problems in this congregation. They might be kept under, under a veneer of religiosity and a veneer that, was, that remained from their previous positive volition, their previous spiritual growth. But what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing here is he's peeling back that veneer to show that the reputation is just a facade and underneath it's become rotten in the church in Sardis. And he's reminding them that he is the only solution to their problem. Of course, the solution always begins with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates uh, every believer, we're born spiritually dead. And as long as a person is spiritually dead, he's cut off from the source of life. He can't have real hope in life. He can't have real meaning in life. There are a lot of people who think they have it, and they, uh, as Paul says in Romans 1, 18 through 20, they're suppressing the truth. They are reshaping, reforming the truth according to their own agenda to try to make it seem as if they're, they're eking out some level of meaning and significance in life. But sooner or later, there are uh, hardships, heartaches, there are disasters, there are disappointments, and in the core of their soul, they know that they, there is no meaning, there is no hope, there is no real happiness for them in life. 
That is because we are all born spiritually dead. We are cut off from the source of life. We're cut off from God. And the only way to have life is to start at the cross, to put our faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And at that instant, God the Holy Spirit regenerates us. He uh, gives us life where there was spiritual death. And it's at that point that spiritual growth begins as we begin to take in the Word of God under the teaching ministry of the Spirit of God, uh, growth begins. And the Holy Spirit is the means of and the power source for our Christian life. He's the leader and guider in the spiritual life. We're told that we are to walk by means of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, that there is this inner battle that goes on in every Christian's life. We're, we're almost... Uh, we, we're, we almost have multiple personalities. We have the personality that's the result of, of the control of the flesh, the sin nature, and then we have the personality that is uh, different when we're operating on the Holy Spirit. And if you get really whacked out as a, as a believer where things become uh, so separate, James describes that believer as the double-minded uh, man, and that's the two-souled man who can't express faith at all. He's just totally torn. He knows he should be one way because that's what he is in Christ, but he's so controlled by his sin nature that he's going in the other direction. Jesus Christ gives us that internal power source at the instant of salvation who gives us the ability through his word, never apart from the word, but through the word, so that we can live the spiritual life. Now, the problem that we have, often in, many, in the lives of many believers, but the problem that we have here at Sardis is a superficial spirituality. And it's important to recognize that they once were alive, but now they're dead. They once were alive indicates not that, that, that uh, uh, they've lost their salvation. I'm not saying they were once spiritually alive, now they're spiritually dead. They were regenerate. This is a church. Jesus Christ does not evaluate a bunch of unbelievers. He is evaluating a church that is made up of a congregation of believers who were once living the spiritual life, but now they are operationally dead. And this is an important concept to understand that there are seven different kinds of death that we've covered that are in the Scriptures. You not only have spiritual death, which is the source and basis for all the other kinds of death, but you also have operational death. This is the believer that is no longer living on the power of God, the Holy Spirit, but he is living his life on the basis of his own sin nature. It is different from carnal death. Carnal death is what happens when you get out of fellowship and for a period of time, usually a short period of time, you're operating on the sin nature. And then you use God's grace recovery uh, procedure and you confess your sins, admit and acknowledge your sins to God, and He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so at that point, you're back in fellowship, abiding in Christ. You're able to begin the walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. But if you get out of fellowship and you stay out of fellowship and you continue to live out of fellowship or you just, you just uh, utilize 1 John 1, 9 on a uh, frequent basis, but you never stay in fellowship, you're, just, you're mostly out of fellowship, you just kind of stick your foot back into fellowship every now and then just to hope that, that uh, somehow things are going, are, will, will straighten out. But you are moving 
more and more in carnality, then that is operational death. The fact that you confess your sins and recover fellowship with God is never meaningful in your experience with God because you don't stay there long enough to maintain a relationship for abiding in Christ and walking by the Holy Spirit. It is the abiding in Christ and the walking by the Holy Spirit, spending maximum time in fellowship, consistently applying the Word, that growth takes place. That is the only arena of growth. So this is a congregation that's involved in operational death. This is the same kind of death that's manifest in James 2.17. James 2.17 says that also faith by itself, if it does not have works, that is application, if you understand the meaning of works within the context of James chapter 1 and James chapter 2, if you don't have application, it's dead. And dead there doesn't mean spiritually dead, never having been saved. Dead there means operationally dead. He's talking to believers again and again and again. In James, in the whole epistle of James, he addresses his audience as brethren. Brethren this, brethren that, my beloved brethren, my beloved brethren. He addresses them as fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, not as unbelievers who are spiritually dead, but as believers who are spiritually alive because they have been regenerated, but they are not applying doctrine, and therefore they are operationally cut off from God, operationally cut off from the Holy Spirit, and operationally dead. They may know a certain amount of doctrine, but they're not applying it. And therefore, because it becomes nothing more than an intellectual uh, awareness of God and intellectual awareness of truth without any application, they were in operational death. That's the same thing that happens with this congregation. You see the same thing that happens with the congregation in Hebrews. In fact, it's interesting how many of these epistles were written at that we have towards the end of our New Testament that are written to challenge believers that are in operational death. I think that perhaps with the initial surge of growth in the church age with the realization that the Messiah had come and that he was raised from the dead and that he appeared to uh, Peter and to uh, all of James and to all of the other apostles as we studied last time and then he appeared to the 500 there was this this surge of enthusiasm later on in the early part of Acts we learned that a persecution arose and they're, they're scattered but they continue to see the expansion of Christianity as they went to different places and there was spiritual growth and spiritual advance and, and large numbers were trusting Christ churches were planted outside of Israel and Antioch and uh, other churches were started down in Egypt. Uh, Paul goes on his missionary journeys, and he establishes congregations throughout Asia Minor and then into Greece. It's, it's an exciting time, and it's a time when miracles are still taking place. And their, their word would come back as the uh, apostles uh, performed various signs and wonders which uh, gave them a certain amount of credibility authenticating their message. But as you move through the apostolic period into the decade of the, of the 60s, that apparently these gifts, these miraculous signs were already dying out uh, in uh, Philippians. 
Paul tells Epaphroditus that uh, he almost died or expresses his concern for Epaphroditus that he almost died. Paul didn't heal him. And Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, uh, don't come to, he doesn't say, come to me so I can heal you. He says, take a little wine for your stomach's sakes. The, the, these, the miraculous signs and wonders that had validated their gifts and message in the early part of the age were beginning to disappear because God did not want Christians to be dependent upon that stimulation for their ongoing Christian stability, but to be dependent upon the Word of God. And so as you move later and later into the church age, you get Hebrews, you've got 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, James was written earlier, but much much of James has that same emphasis. Uh, Peter deals with the same emphasis as well. And the emphasis is not on whether or not you're saved or not, which is how the Lordship Salvation crowd takes it, but the issue is you're saved, but are you sticking with it? Are you persevering? Are you going to hang in there until you reach spiritual maturity and stay there? Because this is a preparation time to get us ready to go to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns at the second coming. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about, especially in these first chapters, is recognizing that the Lord is taking us somewhere. We're in prep school time here on on planet Earth, and He is preparing us so that we can have the capacity and the wisdom to rule and reign with Him as priests and kings. We had such a great illustration of that yesterday in uh, the film The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe there at the end when the battle is won. It is the the four kids who are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve representing humanity who are the ones who are put on the thrones to rule and reign the kingdom of Narnia along with Aslan, who's a representative of Jesus Christ, and, of course, the lion, because Jesus is the lion of Judah. But that's the picture there, and that they are the ones who must win the battle. And that's the issue. We're involved in this great angelic conflict, this great spiritual warfare that's going on, and it's in that warfare that we develop the skills in order to go forward. And there are some that continue to to refine and to hone their skills and to improve their capabilities as a spiritual warrior. And then there are others who, having reached a certain level uh, of uh, proficiency, began to become lazy and they began to become complacent and they began to uh, just relax and get focused on other things and they lose the edge, they lose their skills and they reverse course spiritually and they begin to lose the capacities that they once developed. And that's what uh, the writer to the Hebrews is warning them about and gets very upset with them about at the end of Hebrews chapter 5, which is right where we're studying on Thursday night. And he has to just ream them out because he can't talk to them about the significance of Christ's present role as our priest, as a royal priest after the order of Melchizedek, because they have become dull of hearing. They've become lazy. They've become complacent. They've taken their uh, Christian life for granted, and now they're regressed so much that they're beginning to think that maybe we had it better back when we were uh, in Judaism and we were operating under the law and all that external ritual. That seemed to have more meaning than what we have now in our own spiritual life. 
And the writer of Hebrews says, you know, I can't talk to you as mature anymore. I can't talk to you with, uh, give you meat. I have to go back and give you milk. I have to go back to the basics. We have to get back to the ABCs of Christianity and the Christian life because you, by now you should be well beyond that. By now you should be taking in meat and being able to understand the more uh, complex, sophisticated doctrines that are embedded in Scripture, but you got complacent, now we have to start all over again. And you see the same dynamic is taking place with that Hebrews congregation that you have in Sardis. They were once one thing, but they got complacent, they got lazy, they still had the trappings of uh, what they had achieved formerly, but they got to the point where just as the the city itself did culturally where it coasted on on their past achievements and, and let their guard down. This happened as we studied historically on two different occasions that they just rested in, and relaxed in the fact that they lived in a fortress city. Nobody could really get to them. And, and on two different occasions, once, uh, uh, once under the Persians and again under uh, the, the Seleucids, they were had a surprise attack, and a, a special elite team of, of uh, mountaineers scaled the cliffs and got inside the city and defeated them because they relaxed their guard. And that's what happens. We become complacent, and we relax our guard on our spiritual life. This is always a threat, always a problem, and when we do that, the thing that happens is that sin nature starts taking over. And we can always spot it because, as Paul says in Galatians 5:19 and following, the works, the production of the sin nature is evident. Now, remember, our, our Lord at the beginning of this evaluation in Revelation 3 says, I know your works. Right away, he knows, oida. He knows completely and exhaustively the production in the life of the church at Sardis. He knows exhaustively and completely our works. He knows what's good and what's not, how much is a product of the Holy Spirit, how much is the works of the flesh. And Paul says the works of the flesh are manifest, are evident. And he uses the Greek word phaneros, meaning visible, it's plainly seen. It's there so that you can take a hard look at your own life, do a little self-evaluation. What's going on in your life? What are these characteristics pop up? You don't have to stand up, and we're not going to have personal testimony time right now. But we all know that at times we get complacent, and all of a sudden we go, wait, wait a minute, where? how did I get back into this again? So he gives a list. It's not an exhaustive list of sins because he says at the end that, uh, and the like, there are other things in, similar to this. But he begins with sexual sins, adultery, uh, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. That pretty much covers every realm of uh, sexual activity that takes place outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. Marriage, biblically and according to the design of the Creator, is not for two women or two men. It's designed for one man and one woman, and it's only within the framework 
of that marriage union between the man and the woman that there is to be sexual activity. Outside of that, there is not to be sexual activity. And when there is sexual activity outside of that framework, it can it has the potential of destroying capacity for love and capacity for sex as God intended it in the marriage union. Galatians 5.20 goes on to talk about religious dimensions of the sin nature, idolatry and sorcery. Sorcery there isn't uh, so much witchcraft like we think of sorcery. It's the Greek word pharmakeia, which is where we get our English word pharmacy. It was the use of drugs and hallucinogens, whether that would be alcohol or whatever it might be, in order to induce a certain altered state of consciousness where they would uh, have some kind of closer communion with whatever gods or god they were worshiping, just like the those who worshiped Dionysius would go up into the groves and they would, Dionysius was the god of wine, so they would go up into the groves and they would drink wine and get as drunk as they could, hoping that uh, the God would exchange his spirit with their spirit, and they would have this ecstatic encounter with Dionysius, and Dionysius would fill them, and then they would speak in tongues. Now, if you think about what I just said, it really helps you understand a number of things that were going on in the Greek mindset when the Bible came along and talks about being filled by means of the spirit and... Uh, not and, and speaking in tongues, how they would confuse these things with their with the pagan counterfeit. Then on top of that, you have mental attitude sins that come in, hatred, uh, contentions. This is the idea of hostility. It's a mindset. Uh, the New King James translation of contention is more gives us the idea of being argumentative and more of an overt sin. But the the root word in the Greek has the idea of hostility. It's a hostile mindset. You know, one of the things that, uh, just a little side note, give us a little mental chewing gum for a minute. I remember when I uh, went to Dallas Seminary as a student, and it was so popular. All this psychology stuff was just coming in back in the 70s, and everything, everybody was real popular. And they were taking these various different, uh, I think they call them instruments or assessments, uh, to test psychology. Now, what's sad is, starting in the early 80s, the psychobabble crowd got a hold of Dallas Seminary. Now you have to take the uh, MMPI. I don't remember what that stands for, the Minnesota something proficiency uh, Instrument, and you have to take that before you can be accepted to go into Dallas. And I've known people who who should be students at Dallas Seminary, and they weren't because they didn't fit somebody's profile on the MMPI as to what a pastor should be. But another one of those was the Taylor Johnson uh, test, uh, which I remember taking that. And it's interesting; everybody I knew that was going to seminary that was dogmatic about the priority of doctrine went off the charts on the hostility curve. <laughs> and it, it was, it, we all laughed about it because we, we just be- believed there were absolutes and there were things that were right or things that were wrong, and this tended to always come. And we were just a bunch of mild-mannered guys. You know, but then, according to this thing, we were all hostile because we were dogmatic. We believed in absolutes, and we weren't going to... Uh, compromise on anything. I remember one girl over at Dallas Bible College got real mad at my roommate and I one day and she just sputtered and 
blubber, blubbered, and finally she said, y'all are just a couple of militant biblicists. I said, hmm, that works. I like that. A militant biblicist, that's a good title. So uh, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about somebody who just has a mindset uh, of resentment uh, that comes in later in anger. They're just hostile. They're just always grumpy. They're just always on edge with everybody around them. Uh, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, uh, er- that's arrogant uh, competitiveness there, uh, dissensions, all of these have to do with mental attitude dynamics. The mental attitude sins are some of the worst sins because they underlie all the overt sins. Now, don't get the idea that because mental attitude sins are worse, then overt sins aren't quite so bad. Whenever you get involved in an overt sin, murder, sexual immorality, whatever, guess what's lo- that's what's coming with it. Guess what the, the, uh, the hidden baggage is that goes with every overt sin? It's mental attitude sins. The mental attitude sins are the foundation, but when you start committing overt sins, the mental attitude sins right there alongside, that's the foundation and motivation for those overt sins. Galatians 5.21, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and things like this. So you can just add your own list. But Paul says, look, we can take a look and we can evaluate our lifestyle and see, just run the checklist and find out whether or not you are living a life that is characterized by the sin nature. If so, that's operational death. You're living in carnality, and there needs to be recovery, which means you need to start learning how to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. What I'm getting at here is that when we look at this, these letters, and one thing that really hit me as I was thinking about these verses this morning is this provides the believer with the, the model, whatever word you want to use, the model, the framework, the, the, the blueprint for how to handle any problem in life, any, any circumstance, situation in life. You don't need to have some psychologist, some psychological system. You don't need to go to one of these uh, Christian psychologists and read all their books and learn their, their pattern, their model, whatever. All you need to do is take these these doctrines that we talk about all the time, talk about the sin nature and the lust patterns of the sin nature, the areas of weakness, and and talk about the arrogant skills and how self-absorption leads to uh, self-indulgence, and self-indulgence leads to self-justification, and self-justification leads to self-deception. And when you're in self-deception, you can't properly analyze or understand objectively what's going on in your life. And all of, and as soon as you see these things, you need to lay the doctrine over your life and start uh, praying that God the Holy Spirit would make it clear to you on the basis of the doctrine you're learning where... Uh, you've got these minefields in your thinking that are human viewpoint concepts you're still holding on to that uh, as soon as you start living your Christian life, these minds go off. Next thing you know, you're just back out there in carnality again, and you're wondering what in the world was going on. It's because you're not honestly dealing with all the things that are going on inside inside your soul and inside your inside your thinking. And that's why Paul says in the next verse... The correction. You've got a positive prescription we covered last time in verse 2. A positive prescription, but then there's also a negative warning that comes in the second half of verse 3. But the correction begins with that command to be 
watchful, to be alert. To and, and as we pointed out last time, it's actually two Greek words. It is the imperative to become from the verb genomai plus the participle for watchfulness, to be alert, to constantly be on guard, to be watching what's going on inside your soul, inside of your spiritual life. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. And don't get lazy. Don't get complacent. See, that's what's happened in the, in, with the uh, folks in Hebrews, is they became lazy, they became uh, indolent in their spiritual life, and instead of being watchful. So we have a present active imperative here, which indicates that this is to be an ongoing, continuous characteristic in your, your life and my life. We're to be watchful. We're to be watching out for how easy it is that we just slip over into sin nature control, and then uh, before long we start seeing all kinds of negative things domino as a result of that. But the congregation here is told to be watchful and to strengthen the things that remain in verse 2. And notice the contrast command or the contrast situation at the second part of verse 3. Verse 2 all of verse 2 and the first half of verse 3 focus on how to be watchful. The second half of verse 3 takes the other negative view. Therefore, if you will not be watchful. In other words, you've got a chance here to recover. God's grace is going to provide for you. If you're still alive, no matter how much you've messed up, God has a plan for your life. The plan includes the basic ABCs of the spiritual life, and you just have to go back to implementation. And it may be difficult because by now, in the church of Sardis, they've got this whole habit pattern of negative volition and trying to live life on the basis of the flesh and thinking in terms of these arrogant uh, strategies for making life work apart from God. And they've got to break those habits. It's not the fact that they've got to go back and figure out how they, how they learned how to do this uh, because uh, their parents did this to them or some teacher at school did this or they just didn't have the right environment. They grew up in this scenario or that scenario. We all grew up in some kind of rotten scenario and our sin nature loved it and appropriated it as a rationale for living independently from God. And it doesn't matter whether you were uh, born wealthy with a high education or you were born in the slums with no education and no family everybody's got the same flaw, and that is not environment. It is the sin nature. And that sin nature is going to utilize whatever the external environment is to bring, bring to it rationales and justifications for living independently from God. So what Jesus Christ is saying to the church here is, on the one hand, be alert and be watchful, and this is why and how. On the other hand, if you're not then I will come quickly upon you as a thief. This is in judgment. This isn't using the thief metaphor like the rapture or some of the other passages. It's just using the metaphor of a thief that just as you don't expect a thief to come into your house, it could happen at any moment, any time, no matter what you do, that, that it's sudden and it's unexpected. And that's the point here. Jesus is saying that if you're not going to watch, if you don't straighten up, your spiritual life, then there are going to be consequences and I will come in judgment on you and that may end up in uh, uh, the sin unto death or some other form of serious 
divine discipline. But you won't know when it's coming. So don't wait for the Lord to start uh, disciplining you before you decide to get serious. Start now. The wake-up call is right now. Become watchful and strengthen what remains. See, that indicates the same thing that we see in Hebrews that you can start losing ground. You lose capacity for righteousness. You begin to forget the doctrine that you have learned and stored in the soul, so it's no longer usable. You begin to be dominated by sinful habit patterns and thought patterns rather than habit patterns and thought patterns that are produced by uh, doctrine and the Holy Spirit in your life. And these things began to become entrenched in your life, in your thinking again. And next thing you know, you look around, you wonder how you got into the mess you're in. It took place just one step at a time, gradually and incrementally, with one bad decision after another bad decision, thinking that, oh, well, I can just use 1 John 1, 9, and I'll get forgiveness, and I'll be right back in fellowship, and everything will be okay. But you see, the mandate in Scripture isn't to get in fellowship. The mandate in Scripture is to abide in Christ, i.e. stay in fellowship, and walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, be watchful and strengthen the things that remain. That is, there's still something left from that former maturity that they had, but they're about to die. They're about to be destroyed. And he says, I have not found your works perfect before God. So grace provides a means of recovery. This is the same thing Paul says in Philippians 3, 13 through 13 and 14. No matter how much you've messed up, Paul says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The issue isn't how badly you have failed. Don't get caught up in a guilt trip. That doesn't impress God one little bit. God is omniscient. And if you have failed in certain ways in the past and you feel guilty about it, you don't accept the promise of God's forgiveness based on 1 John 1, 9, uh, then you're just now you're compounding the sin because... You, not only are you reliving the sin in your own thought, but you're adding to it the fact that you're not believing that God was God's grace is sufficient to completely forgive the sin and to blot it out and to remove it from you. And she said, We've had a great illustration of this in the film The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which we saw last night. There is the one brother, Edmund, who has betrayed the family. And so he has gone over to the... Uh, uh, side of the white witch and as a result of that all kinds of negative things and horrible consequences had occurred but finally he is rescued reunited with his uh, brother and two sisters and there's the scene where he's up on the ridge talking with Aslan the lion who of course is the uh, uh, figure of the Lord Jesus Christ and you don't hear what they're saying because the issue and confession between the believer and the Lord is one of privacy but you know that they're up there, and that's what they're talking about. And when Aslan brings Edmund down to, the, to his brother and sisters, he, say, he says to them, what's done is done. It's in the past. Don't worry about it. Now let's go forward. 
I mean, just a great statement of the reality of, of forgiveness at confession. What's done is done. Whatever you've done, whatever your failure is, whatever the consequences are, you can't do anything about it. Feeling guilty over it, feeling remorseful over it, isn't going to uh, help anything at all. It's not going to move you forward one little bit. The issue now is to put the things in the past that are in the past and go forward. What Paul says in Philippians 3.13, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. So the Lord is saying to this congregation that they need to be watchful and strengthen the things that remain, for I have not found your works perfect before God. They haven't been filled up. There is more that you can do potentially. No matter how much you failed, you can reverse course. There is hope. There is a future. Now, he gives that in solution a little more uh, meat, a little more substance in verse 3. It begins with the command, remember. It's a conclusion. He says, therefore, remember. Now, verse 3 is a subset of verse 2. Verse 2 says the command there is to be watchful. How do you be watchful? You have to remember. That's the first command. It is the Greek verb, mnemonuo, which means to uh, remember, to call to mind, recall to mind. Present active imperative. It's an ongoing practice here. This is to be a standard procedure for the believer. Remember something. Remember what? Remember how you have received and heard. Now, see... What they're told, you failed, you've blown it, there's, there's no life there now, you're, you're living like dead men in a live church, you just got a, a, a fake reputation now, you're living on past laurels, but the solution is to remember something. What? To remember how you grew. So there's an emphasis here that on procedure, you have to know what the, your procedures were for growth. You, you had them one time. You knew what those procedures were for spiritual growth at one point, and you have to go back and remember what those procedures are and implement them all over again. You forgot how to, how to stay in shape. You forgot how to exercise. You used to know what those drills were. You used to know what those exercise routines were, but you don't, you've forgotten now. But you need to go back and remember how you advanced before and then you need to put that in practice all over again. He says you have to remember how you have received and heard. And that verb for receive is the Greek word lambano. It's a perfect active indicative here, which is interesting because the perfect tense always emphasizes a, the present reality of a completed past action. This is something that's completed in the past. They had received it in the past so that it is uh, a, a complete action and it is theirs now. Lombano. Lombano is a word that indicates our reception of the Word of God, how we have uh, learned in the past. And so they are to think about how they received the Word in the past. There is a mechanic or procedure in the Scripture that's described for how we take in the Word of God. And I use a grace learning spiral to illustrate this. So we, this circle represents our thinking, all of our, the whole realm of our thinking, which the Bible calls the noose. 
inside the news, at the core of our thinking, is what the Bible calls the heart. It's not the physical heart. It doesn't have to do with the the uh, uh, organ that pumps blood through us whatsoever. That's that's not the point of the metaphor. The word heart is never used in the Scripture to describe the physical organ that pumps blood through the body. When they talk about heart, they, they use the term metaphorically, and they never use the term metaphorically based on that idea of an organ that pumps blood. That wasn't part of their thinking at the time. What they're thinking of is that heart represents the center or the core of something. We use it that way a lot today. We talk about the heart of a matter. Uh, you go down to the store and you buy a little jar of hearts of palms. What's that? It's what's at the core, what's at the center of the palm. It doesn't have anything to do with circulation or pumping anything. It's the core of something. And so the cardia in the scripture is the heart of your thinking. What is at the heart of your thinking that is, that is controlling your life, your application? So we have a pastor that comes along and a pastor teaches his word. And you come to Bible class again and again, and the pastor teaches the Word. And as you hear the Word, you need to be under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, the filling ministry of the Spirit, because what He's filling you with is the Word. And it is the Holy Spirit who makes the Word of God understandable. Now, if you're a baby at the ABC level, you're not going to understand superlapsarianism or infralapsarianism or sublapsarianism when I teach that. Don't worry, I'm not going to teach that for a long time. You won't understand some of the complexities that are in the Scripture. You may come to Bible class on Thursday night, and I'm talking about uh, epistemological antinomianism, and you say, what in the world is that? And I go through this again and again and again, and it's just you, you understand it sort of. You follow it, but it's not really sinking in yet. Well, that's meat. There's the meat of the Word, and we have to teach the meat of the Word. You know, too many pastors get the idea that if they ever teach the meat of the Word, the babies are going to leave. No, the babies are going to realize they've got a lot to grow and a lot to learn. They need to stay there so that they can learn this. The Holy Spirit makes it understandable, but it may take years before you understand it. Just because you can repeat what I said or what some other pastor said doesn't mean you understand it. Let me tell you, there were all kinds of things I regurgitated on examinations in seminary that it was years before I understood them as I went through the Scripture again and again and again and again. So this isn't a one-shot event. You don't just come in, sit down, confess your sins. The Holy Spirit's going to make it understandable. You go out and you, you understand it right away. That's not what I mean by this. It is the Holy Spirit who, over the process of time, the more you study the Word, He makes it understandable to you. He builds that frame of reference with the basic building blocks and then constructs the understanding brick by brick on top of that. But it's done through the Holy Spirit. The spiritual life is a supernatural way of life. Now, He makes it understandable, but you have to exercise your volition to understand it. That's part of what this, the Old Testament talked about in terms of meditation. You have to think about it. It's not just coming and hearing and writing a few notes, but you have to think about it. You have to go home and maybe talk with your husband, your wife, your kids, or friends, or whomever, and just cogitate on Just chew on this for a while to, to see how you understand it. And you, then you have to believe it. You, know, you can't believe what you don't understand. It's just a simple principle. Just because you can... 
repeat what I've said doesn't mean you understand it. And if you don't understand it, you can't believe it. Even though you'd like to, even though it sounds right, you don't understand it yet, so you can't get that your mental fingers around it and say, okay, this is mine. It takes time. But when we believe it, as we, as we hear it and we say, yeah, I believe it, I want to understand it, it goes into our soul as what the Bible calls just basic knowledge. And then as we take that academic knowledge now that we have, we finally understood it, we believe it, and then God the Holy Spirit transfers it into the core of our thinking, makes it more and more real to us, and that dominates our thing. There's an exchange process going on here. I don't have an arrow here, but, but what gets ejected out the other side is the garbage from human viewpoint. Now we have what the Bible calls epinosis, which is usable spiritual knowledge. It's a storehouse of, of usable spiritual knowledge there. Uh, we, we, we will only apply a small percentage of what's there at any given time. That's the way it is in every area of life. No matter what you know, whatever field you're in, think about it. How much have you learned? Have you been in that field for 10, 15, 20 years? How much do you know? How much do you know about all kinds of things in life? But on any given day, you're only applying 1% or 2% of it. Some of it you may never apply again, but it's from that, that reservoir of knowledge that all of your application comes. And you know, I, the reason I say that is you always find people who come along and say, you know, if we, you just teach so much, and it's, it's all this detail. You know, if we just applied more of what we already know, we'd be better believers. But the reality is you're never going to apply more than 1% or 2% of what you know. The more you know, the more you're going to apply, because the aggregate is going to continue to increase. So we have to learn more and more so that that small amount of application continues to in, increase. We don't learn all this because we're on some kind of an intellectual head trip. We learn this so that everything else eventually makes sense. Everything in God's creation is interconnected. Well, once we get this storehouse of knowledge, then comes application, and that, again, involves volition. We have to decide in this circumstance that I'm going to apply the Word. So, the Sardis Christians said, remember how you received and heard? Remember that process? You sat under the pastor, you, you were in fellowship, you, you thought about it, you meditated upon it, God the Holy Spirit made it, made it real to you and it became usable doctrine and you used it and you applied it. You have to remember that. You have to go back to that all over again. Hold fast is the word that he uses next. And hold fast is the Greek word tereo, which means to focus on something, to make it a priority, to hold on to it. Hold fast, and then he uses the word repent. And repent there is the Greek word metanoeo, which means to change your mind or to change your thinking. Now, this isn't a one-shot deal, just repent and it's over with. This isn't a synonym here for confessing your sin. It is a statement that what's happened to these uh, operationally dead believers in Sardis is that they have gotten so far away from divine viewpoint that they're, they're thinking like unbelievers. They have to change the way they think. And they have to go back to basic ABCs. And that's not always easy to, to go back. You have to go back and you have to think about your life again. Uh, 
many of us have had the horrible experience of getting a little bit older and starting to put on a little weight, and all of a sudden we have to think and look at what we eat every day. We have to start counting those calories or carbohydrates or whatever it is you do, and all of a sudden you have to focus on what you're doing on a day-to-day schedule. You have to maybe change your schedule so that you can incorporate uh, exercise and you can uh, spend, have to spend a little more time reading about nutrition and things like that just to, to bring your diet under control and to take care of uh, uh, health issues. And, and it takes time, it takes energy, it takes focus. And when you've really gotten away from the Lord and lost your, the, the spiritual disciplines and procedures, it's even harder but God gives you the grace to be able to do it. You have to stop and think about what your priorities are. How are you spending your time every day? Are you really spending enough time in the Word? Are you just showing up at Bible class once a week or maybe maybe twice a week, but the rest of the week you're just too busy and too consumed with work and all these other details to make the study of the Word a priority? But we have to get back to making that a priority, which means you sit down and you look at how you spend your time each day, minute by minute, hour by hour, and say, okay, I need to take carve out 30 minutes just to reflect on what I'm learning in Bible class. I need to read my Bible. I need to spend some time in prayer. I need to maybe memorize some scripture. Just think about what's going on. Maybe while I'm eating lunch, sometime when I can just get alone. It's just a lot of times we hear people poo-poo the idea of a quiet time, but all that quiet time is is a time where we can can just sort of get away from distractions, focus on what we're learning in class, get out our notes, get out our Bible, and just think about what this means in terms of application, make lists in terms of application. You know, in light of what I've learned, I need to do this, this, and this, and then implement a plan. But it's not enough to make a plan. We have to work the plan. And you work out the plan, and if you're in a process of recovery, if you've been uh, backsliding, then it takes a lot of work because you have to basically undo a lot of bad habits, mental habits I'm talking about, priority habits, uh, time use habits, and you have to replace those with wise doctrinal priorities and uh, time use habits. It's the process that we're talking about in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul said, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, understanding the grace of God in your life, to present your body. Here it's not talking about something physical. It's your whole life. God doesn't want you just Sunday morning, Tuesday night, Thursday night, but it's, it's a life, total lifestyle, total life involvement. One day some of you are going to wake up and realize that what is really being communicated from this pulpit is the doctrine is your life. Everything else is secondary. Doctrine and understanding doctrine is at the core of everything else you're ever going to do in life. And until that happens, the chances of you being able to experience what God promises in terms of stability and happiness and joy just is never going to get there. And when you get like the Sardis Christians 
and you have reversed course so that all that's there is this facade, then as soon as some crisis occurs, that facade's going to crack and disappear, and all of a sudden you're just exposed as being no different, no better than any unbeliever without hope and without stability. So we are to present our bodies, our entire life, as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And the, the word used here for worship indicates that the entire life becomes a, a worship, not just, it's not corporate worship, not what's going on in church, it's that the individual's life becomes a factor of worship on a day-to-day basis. And, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what that diagram's talking about. We have to understand that process. That's what Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis. Remember how you received and heard the word. So you have to hold fast. You have to make it a priority, and you have to repent. That doesn't mean remorse. It, do, it means changing your mind. Ch- that, that whole process of Romans 12.2, which is to... Well, I lost the slide. That whole process of Romans 12.2, which is to simply not to be conformed to the world, but transform all your thinking. It's a complete overhaul of everything in your soul. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged, just as the church in Sardis was challenged with the importance of remembering the basics, the basic spiritual skills of spiritual growth, making the word of God our highest priority, learning to think biblically, walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, and advancing in our spiritual life. Without that, then we reverse course, we backslide, we regress, and we just have a facade of Christianity without the uh, internal reality. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's sitting there thinking, well, I'm not sure what this is all about. I'm not even sure if I'm going to go to heaven. This is your opportunity to make that sure and certain. Maybe you have never been faced with the gospel claims before. Maybe you've never understood who Jesus Christ is. But Jesus Christ was the eternal Son of God who became a man and went to the cross to die for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins so that sin is no longer the issue. The issue is Jesus Christ. And the issue is made clear in the Scripture. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. simply means to trust in Him and in His work on the cross for a relationship with God and for eternal life. When we trust Christ as our Savior, at that instant God imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we receive eternal life where the Holy Spirit regenerates us, we're born again, we're a new creature in Christ, and we have a new life. And the way to nourish that new life is through the daily study, application of the Word of God. Father, we thank you for all that you have provided for us, And we pray that we would be mindful of what we have been challenged with this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.